Welcome to the newest episode of Walnut Grovecast. Walnut Grovecast needs your support, so please head over to patreon.com slash walnutgrovecast to find out what cool stuff you get for as little as 17 cents a day. Yes, only 17 cents a day gets you some amazing stuff. Thank you so much for your support. such television shows as Family Affair, Night Gallery, Egypt Gets Married, Shazam, The Waltons, especially Kung Fu, and of course, Little House on the Prairie. Also, The Six Million Dollar Man, Hawaii Five-O, Starman. Um, of course, I'm leaving um, a ton of stuff off. Um, you also had a role in Red Dawn, uh, the film from 1984, um, and there are so many of Little House fans know... Rodimus best for his role as John Jr., um, who I, I think your name ended up being John Sanderson Edwards Jr., um, and he was the two-timing scoundrel of a girl who will lose her vision pretty soon. <laughs> so um, please welcome to the show, Rodimus Perra. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having <laughs> me on, Mark. You're the two-timer. <laughs> I know. I yeah. know. Something that, something that always uh, greets me whenever I have to greet fans. There's, How dare you, sir? <laughs> they, I know. Well, and there's a story behind that. I don't know if you'd be interested to hear that as, as yeah. to why that happened. Um, some people know this already, but, um, you know, the character originally was written to become Mary Ingalls' husband. And uh, he's the fiancé. He proposes to her. Uh, he asks Mr. Ingalls for her, you know, for his blessing and for her hand in marriage. And, and uh, he, he says, fine. And, and off they go almost into the sunset. And then, of course, he gets this uh, scholarship to go writing and to go to college for his writing skills. He's a poet and a writer. And uh, and everything was going hunky dory there. Mm -hmm. I was supposed to come back. I was supposed to come back from college when she goes blind. But in that interim, uh, Michael Landon had a personal falling out with I'm hearing an echo, by the way, Mark. Sorry. Oh, I'm sorry. All right. Um, I'm not getting anything on my end. Negative. Oh, okay. oh, good. Well, that's good. Okay, so that, never mind. Sorry, technical pause there. Um, anyway, uh, during during the series, after we were shooting and they established my character, Michael Landon had a personal falling out with uh, the man who played my father, Victor French, who played uh, Isaiah Edwards, my adopted father, mm -hmm. and uh, who had just adopted the, the three children and and etc. and was continuing to live in Walnut Grove. Uh, Victor French went went and did a pilot for a series, very short-lived series, comedy series called Carter Country. And uh, because actually Victor was not under uh, continuous contract, he was not under a series contract with Little House. He was on a episode-to-episode uh, -episode contract, as many of us were, including myself. So I guess he didn't feel any any particular breach uh, uh, by going off and doing a pilot. But it, it offended Michael. And Michael mm -hmm. 
um, and he ha- who were drinking buddies, they um, they had this falling out, and and Michael did what he has done in the past, which is um, take swift action and wrote the whole family out of the show. But because my character was as oh dang- yeah, I mean that's I- really wild. I, you know, I've heard rumors of why you've why you left the show. People said that you didn't get along with Melissa Sue Anderson. Well, I'll go into that in a second too. Oh, yeah, okay. I, mean, I appreciate the leading question. That's good. Um, but because my character was due to come back, and because you know he was, people liked the romance, and it was a very lovely relationship. In fact, that was sure. depicted on screen. Um, they had to write an episode and and get to purposely get people uninterested in my character. So this whole elaborate episode was written by Michael and directed by Michael. Uh, where we go to, uh, he, he goes to Chicago where I'm going to school and finds there that I am this two-timing scoundrel who's been writing love letters back to uh, his daughter. Uh, but in fact, uh, and seeing this society girl who has me wrapped around her little finger. And of course, I'm this country bumpkin who doesn't know city slickers from, from anybody. And, um, and uh, I, 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 suffer from this confusion and michael says you better tell my daughter that you know it's over because you know she needs to know so that's so that's and they, and they dismissed the entire family in one sentence in that episode where we're all having dinner this is before he see he knows that i'm two-timing her mm-hmm. uh, he says and he says to me at dinner so john um are you coming back to walnut grove or are you going to go visit your family out in california and with that <laughs> one sentence the entire edwards family is now in California, except for me. Right, yeah, so, this whole history that was just flop right there, stamped, you know, and, and approved, you know. Exactly. But being freed from the series allowed me to actually uh, continue with my studies, and I ended up going to New York uh, for three years to study acting with Stella Adler. And then when I came back from New York in 1981, I uh, went to visit the set, and I heard that, that um, because I heard that uh, him and Michael had, uh, I mean, the, Victor French and Michael Landon had, had made up and that Victor French was back on the show as his character. And I was like, Oh, that's great. I just came back from my my acting chops are awesome. I've got this down. I'm going to show up on the set and say hi. And I did, I came to the set and I arrived the very day. And this is Michael Landon delivers this news to me. He goes, Hey, Rodimus. Well, it's great to see. He goes, Hey, we just shot the scene where we find your dead body. And it was like a knife through the heart. Oh man, I don't even mean to laugh. That's well, no, no. Well, no. Well, they were all laughing. I, of course, sort of (laughs) kind of laughing outside, fake laughter, while I'm like, you know, going, "Oh crap!" You know, inside. Um, And uh, and and there went my hopes of continuing my career with with the uh, little house people. But um, in any event, there is some truth to the other part of the story too, which you which you alluded to, which is that. um, Despite my best efforts uh, to try to be professionally um, familiar with um, Melissa Anderson, who at the time was very kind of a tight held held everything tightly to her, and her mom was hovering mm-hmm. kind of stage parent, and you know kind of filled her with the fear of God, and uh, and I think you know she still had not had any uh, really experiences with boys yet, of course, because she was very young too. Um, and I tried to be friends with her, take her to lunch and talk with her and stuff, but, uh, it did not, um, it did not happen. And, uh, the chemistry wasn't there and she acted very coldly toward me whenever we weren't shooting. And even actually while we were shooting, she did things like, you know, try to put her hand up in between our lips when we're supposed to kiss so that we, our lips don't actually touch. I mean, 
things that were just like that the director had to yell at me to make me the problem because he couldn't yell at her because she was so. Right. Wow. That's those uh... kinds of things went on. And, and I guess for convenience's sake, you know, Michael said, well, okay, they're not getting, the chemistry isn't good. Uh, the dad just pissed me off, uh, by doing this other series. Okay. Let's get rid of the whole, the whole crew. So that's what happened. And you're about, um, like 17 years old at that point. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, um, was a good time to kind of continue your studies. Um, anyway, yeah, I was already, I was actually already in college. I, when I, the year I would have been a senior in high school, I, I had already taken an 11th grade. I took something called the, at that time it was called the GED mm-hmm. or the high school equivalency test because I didn't want to be a senior. I, I didn't like high school and I didn't really enjoy the whole social scene and stuff. So I, I wanted to go to college and keep studying filmmaking and, and such. So, um, I was actually already in college at 17 and, and then the next year I, I went to New York to, to the conservatory of, of uh, directing and acting with Stella Adler. So, uh, yeah. So that's that's what I was doing at that time. You know, and then at this point, you had already had roles on a number of really well-known shows. Um, I mentioned them before Shazam, which is a personal favorite. Um, uh-huh. The Six Million Dollar Man. I mean, this is that's a pretty big show. Um, right. Same thing with, um, you know, and especially with Kung Fu. I, I would okay. say that Kung Fu is probably the place where you had the biggest impact. Would you agree? Like, you know, I think that's a show that people need to go back and watch because I remember from when I was younger and it was, it really left an impression on me. Yeah. Well, culturally it definitely had the most impact between, well, actually, I don't know. I mean, little house has had longer legs. Little house is now, you know, out in Blu-ray and there are legions of fans who have, you know, continuous every year they have big get togethers and stuff like that. And they try to bring some members of the cast out. So it, you know, it has a big following because it had a big cast and it really affected a lot of people uh, who really identified with it, the whole heartland of, of, of America and even, um, you know, agrarian parts of, of France and Germany and other parts of the world where there's a lot of um, village life. Um, they identify with the show because it depicts a, a, a microcosm of humanity trying to, make things work with each, with one another, with the land, with the nature. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and, and so a lot of people identified with, with Little House. But, you know, when you're talking about universal truths, well, Little House had that too. But Kung Fu addressed things, uh, I guess, more directly on a sort of spiritual level. You know, how does one face the challenges of, of peril and, you know, life and limb endangerment and, and, and the better, you know, how does one make choices that where the least harm can be done. And, you know, so it took it to a whole other philosophical level. And that's why I think even though Kung Fu, the show itself may be fading from memory in, in, in a certain generation, the actual character of Grasshopper persists as a cultural icon and is still, you know, people will make jokes in the office about, ah, Grasshopper, you have much to learn. And they don't even know that it's. No, people have no idea where the reference even comes from. Right. Um, and it came from your character. Which uh, right. was Grasshopper, or um, I, I think Kwai Shang Kane. I'm not 100. I'm sure I'm butchering. Close enough. Close enough. Close enough. <laughs> but um, you know, there was this one particular scene that I remember when I was younger, where your head is shaved um, on the show, mm-hmm. and I always wondered: is this was your head really shaved for that scene? Great question. Thank you. Uh, yeah, that was a very uh, that was a very uh, difficult moment. Very because young fact- too. I was, yeah, I was, I was 11 and a half and my head was actually being shaved on camera. Um, 
and they hired a, a, a real um, Chinese barber to do the work because uh, you know he had to use a straight a straight razor. <laughs> sure, <laughs> why phone. not? Right while we're here. <laughs> <laughs> so, so they had to have a guy who knew his way around a straight razor on it's a young their kid. Head. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, so yeah, the, the fact is, I did shave it, and I had to stay in character for that. So that was very challenging. And of course, then the biggest challenge after that was going back to school with a bald head. They fitted me with a wig, and I think that lasted about three hours when kids noticed that I was itching my scalp and the whole head, the whole hair moved. Mm. And by recess. Everyone, the word went around that Rodimus is, has a wig on, and the the, the um, his name is Tito, the, the bully of the school, chasing me around, <laughs> chasing me around the lunch, uh, the whole the, the schoolyard, and uh, finally I tripped and fell, and he yanked the wig off my head. Oh and, man! And it was like this fisheye lens of everyone pointing down at me, and you know me laying on the ground, miserable. You know, it was a horrible, horrible moment. Sounds like a, um, a scene from from a TV show. From you know, that could be out right now. That could be. Well, indeed, indeed. Screening. Um, but, you know, there was this connection between uh, your mentor, Master Poe, and you, the grass, uh, well, grasshopper. Mm-hmm. And um, this is something, uh, I don't know if you've heard this, I'm sure you've heard the um, connection here, but it, how it's, that mentorship has inspired the Karate Kid, as well as um, even even something as big as Yoda and the Luke Skywalker connection. And yeah, I was actually, wondering I'm, if you ever. Heard well, of that. I'm glad you picked up that meme because actually I've been putting that out for the last few years. So I'm glad that it's come around. And now I didn't get from you. Now you're so. asking me the question. No, no, that, no, 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 no. This is perfect. <laughs> I, you, you are, you are. This is a closure of a loop for me that uh, is very mm-hmm. important. So I thank you so much, Mark, for sure. for saying for asking that because, in fact, uh, I believe, and and I'll tell you another substantiating reason why I think there's actually real truth to it that it is in fact the DNA of Luke Skywalker and and uh, Yoda and Obi Wan, uh, and also Karate Kid, and particularly for this reason, of course, Karate Kid came out well after Star Wars, but Star Wars, which you know debuted in 1977, just a couple of years after Kung Fu was canceled, um, so it was very much a buzzy. You know, people were talking about that show for a while while uh, uh, Lucas was writing the script, obviously, and here's the clincher. <laughs> George Lucas lived three doors down from me in Hollywood. What? <laughs> during yes, during during the t- entire time I was filming the series, and um, his, his land, he lived in a three in a triplex a converted house that had three apartments in it, uh, in a residential neighborhood. And uh, his landlord, who lived in the building as well, was a very good friend of my mom and mine, and would come visit us all the time and talk with us. And then, of course, he talked with all of his tenants. He was a real talky kind of chatty landlord. Mm-hmm. So. You know that that Lucas knew that I lived three doors away, and and of course he was quite taken with the whole mystical aspect because that's what became almost directly. Yeah, like in, when did THX eleven thirty eight come out? Um, uh, that was a couple of years earlier. That was nineteen sixty. Yeah. So he's a working guy at this point. You know, he's he's George Lucas. You know, it's not like he's some guy who lives down the street. You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah, like, he, I think he had just done THX 1138. That's 1971. American Graffiti. Um, well, he was, yeah, he was actually working on American Graffiti at Fox at that time. And then he was also writing Star Wars as well. So, wow. yeah. So there you go. Uh, I, I, I believe that there's a direct connection. And, and thank you very much for. for <laughs> well, I'm a Star Wars nerd. So it's like all these type of things. Um, I feel like I've acquired them over the years. 
mm-hmm. and friends of mine who are fans of um of 70s and 80s type of television um i i like a little bit older as well but we we always find these type of connections and um i think it makes sense i think if people were to really take a look at kung fu and this connection that the characters have um i think it's clear well prior to that there had never been at least in the american now there may have been of course in in china and in, and in movies uh in china uh, i'm sure this has existed before but in american psyche prior to kung fu there never was this teacher student relationship type of thing ever depicted so it began in kung fu and then mm-hmm. of course as you said you cited the other two examples that 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 it that it led to so that is the dna of a DNA of it, at least in, in, in the U S it um, wouldn't be the first time George Lucas, um, you know, borrowed ideas from other places. Uh, the hidden fortress, for instance, he, he's gone on the record saying that C3PO and R2D2's characters come from this Japanese film. Um, I, I would actually, well, that may be true. Uh, and I don't know about that Japanese film, but I actually lead uh, it back to, um, silent running. Uh, the Bruce mm-hmm. Dern film with the uh, the little droids. I think he almost even called them droids, possibly. You know what? Or, I mean, I you know what? It could be a combination of a number of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, well, did you ever see Silent Running? No, I don't think so. Oh, um, it's not. I'm surprised. Science, science fiction film. But very briefly, the story is a uh, uh, several ships are in are in uh, orbit around the solar system, containing the last. Uh, foliage last uh, uh bio, bio you know green biology on the planet earth the earth has is now defoli deforested defoliated and these ships have been in circulation hoping for conditions to change on the planet earth so that they can be reforested again and uh Wait, is this a- something that they're trying to sell um to the real world right now i'm just <laughs> <laughs> it just seems that way well bruce, <laughs> bruce, Dern, bruce Dern plays this um you know uh, uh um not biologist, oh, but uh, <laughs> botanist. Yeah, botanist. Yeah, he plays a botanist uh, who uh, the, the the word comes from the government uh, he, the, to Jettas in the domes. They all are in these beautiful domes. They're like these terrariums out in space. And and he's been given their ship has been told. <laughs> okay, I know this movie. This yeah, sounds, yeah, you, what year is it from? Um, that's a good question. You can find it real quickly. 60s? Silent, Silent. No, 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 no. It's seventies. Silent oh. running. Um, actually, it was directed. It. it was directed by. Um, the guy who uh, did uh, the special effects for 2001, uh, his name escapes me at this moment. I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, he, he, it was his directorial debut. Uh, Douglas Trumbull. Oh, okay. Douglas Trumbull, uh, who also c- went on to create another uh, interesting film format called ShowScan, which was uh, uh, 70 millimeter running at 60 frames per second instead of, instead of 24. Yes. Anyway, but that's another thing. Um, anyway, he, uh, he directed the film, and, uh, and in it there are – uh, these little robots that move around kind of like they make they don't speak they just make little funny little whirring sounds and 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 they and they communicate with the humans on the ship and they're like the the little slave slave droids if you will and and they had little uh amputees like double amputees inside them operating them, them. <laughs> i really so, have to yeah i, I feel I, like I, an idiot <laughs> like what is this that you t- what is this right. that you speak up i'm so um, glad i heard <laughs> something mark no, I'm psyched. Um, um, so, all right. So you have George Lucas living down the street from you in Hollywood. Right. Um, at this point, all right, you, your character is being um, eliminated on Little House on the Prairie. Right. Um, and 
you know, is this something where you're thinking, all right, I, I do want to continue acting? Um, or did you get into anything else? Did oh, you ever want to get behind the camera? Right. Well, thank you. That's a, that's a very nice, generous question. Um, yeah. I, uh, when I was about, well, when actually when I started doing Kung Fu, um, I, I started losing interest in acting uh, because my mom and I had a deal that when I started acting at, at seven and a half, I told her at eight years old, I said, I want to stop when I'm 13. And she said, okay. I said, well, so we have, a, we have an agreement. I want to continue you know, my studies to be an astronaut. Of course, when I was seven and a half, that's what you wanted yeah. to do in, in the late <laughs> 60s. Um, but, but I remembered the deal. And when I was 13 and right, with a shaved head in the middle of the Kung Fu series, I said to my mom, I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, what? You know, how dare you? You, know, you want to give all this up? Because she was, she was an actress herself and, and sort of took a back seat. Uh, when I, when I, when my career took off and she was kind of living through me a little bit and, you know, collecting the checks and, um, and, uh, but I, my heart wasn't in it. And so when she said, when she reneged on the agreement, I just was, I start, I stopped being interested in acting and I actually had already begun doing super eight films of my own when mm. I was 11 and I really got into directing and I really got into the filmmaking and I thought, well, okay, you know, I'll stay in the business as long as I can to learn uh, what's going on behind the camera from the best school in the world, which is, you know, the professional television and film in, environment in Hollywood. Uh, you can't get better than that. And, and you said uh, you worked with Stella Adler. Well, and then, yeah. Well, and then after I got my technical chops, I already was in college, as I mentioned to you, uh, already studying filmmaking, uh, all the, the different aspects of it, cinematography and editing and sound and everything. And then I, yeah, then I decided, you know what, I really need to make this transition between the teenage roles and the younger leading man roles and in order to do that well, I better get my acting chops in line because mm -hmm. I never had a technique before. I was just kind of a natural and I was good, but I did not have, you know, something to fall back on when, when, you know, challenges would come up with a character or whatever. So I, I took to, to going to the Stella Adler Conservatory. I studied with her in the summer in LA and I went, okay, this is something I really need to do. And I packed my two suitcases and moved to New York and was there for three years. Um, and I studied directly. I just want to mention you know, the, the Stella Adler studio of acting is a big deal. It, it's not like just a, you know, a building. No, it's right. a lot of, you know, it's a very prominent um, organization. And um, even to right now, you know, it's one of these things where it, it is very, um, it's very well respected, um, especially yeah, here it, in New York. It's a school. It's a Yeah, thank you. It is a school of, it's a school of acting, meaning, as in school of thought, meaning that there are, different approaches to acting and Stella had one major approach and her biggest not rival, but the other approach at the time was Strasberg. Strasberg mm -hmm. taught one type of acting technique and Stella Adler taught a totally different one. They, they both, the goal was to do a believable performance, but how you got there was two different ways. And many people believe that Stella had a healthier technique because she relied more on the imagination of the mm -hmm. actor who would use his imagination or her imagination to create the role. And Strasbourg School invited you to go into your own life, into your own pain and your own experience and bring that up to create the emotional truth of the character. And some people felt that that was not as healthy because you end up bringing your own personal baggage along with you versus Stella where you can hang the costume and all the baggage up on the on the hanger and go home and have a, you know, have a, have a glass of wine with your, with your significant other and be, and be able to come back the next day refreshed. And this is all in the early eighties that you were in New York. Yeah. 70, 78 through 81. 
I mean, it's a crazy time for New York, you know. Oh, I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, oh, yeah. Um, you know. Especially that area, you know. Um, right. It's, um, you know, this must have been a way, like, really crazy for you. I mean, you're a West Coast kid. Um, oh, I had a, I had a bicycle stolen from me by a... By a, a um, How many times? <laughs> Twice, actually. <laughs> yeah, it can't be just once. Come on. But, it's New York City I mean, in the I 70s. Mean, I mean, talked out of me. In other words, I, I had a, a very slick uh, coke addict who kind of mm-hmm. did a whole song and dance with me and ended up absconding with my bicycle once. Um, so, and that was in the that was in the Alphabet City in the East Village yeah. when it was all derelict buildings, you know. So, yeah, I mean, now it's now it's a different world there. Oh, yeah. but even in the nineties, um, Alphabet City that was like the heroin database. <laughs> you know, it's yeah. um, no, it's it's definitely it was even worse, was even worse than late seventies. Yeah. Um. But, you know, for you to have this kind of, um, you know, culture shock, really, um, uh-huh. and also you're you're coming in with a bit of experience. How did you feel? Um, how did you translate that to something, I guess, new? Okay. If I understand your question, um, you're saying being you're from the West. You're a working or- actor. I mean, you, you have a resume. Okay. Oh, so, okay. Well, I knew that I was making a sacrifice. I guess maybe the best way to answer this question is, my agents, uh, before I went to New York, said, Rodimus, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I have to go and study with Stella. This is really important. They go, ah, da, 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 da. you just came off of Little House. You cannot possibly leave town right now because you're a hot property. And we got all kinds of things that we're going to line up for you. And, you know, we're going to we're working for you and you're, and you're good. Love you're, boat, you know, fantasy island, you know. Well, well, exactly. Same thing yeah. that other people in Little House did. Right. Um, and I said, you guys. You know, you, you're probably right, but my soul is pulling me in this direction, and it may not be the most practical business decision, but for my personal development and also my development as an actor and director, I really, really need to do this. But three years later, uh, coming back to L.A., uh, as any actor who would leave the scene for that long would find out the same thing, Hollywood forgets you. And my agents were absolutely right. And when I came back to town, I was no longer a teenager. I was already, you know, in my early 20s at that point. And sure enough, um, I had to start the, the ball rolling from scratch. And um, not a lot of things happened. I mean, I got a few roles, but it just never quite clicked. And again, I was only doing it at that point because I wanted to parlay, hopefully parlay my acting career into a directorial career. Um, but it was too many, um, too few jobs, too far between. I did, mm-hmm. uh, like you said, Starman. Uh, the last thing I, last feature film I did was, was Red Dawn. I did an episode of... Um, uh, something, oh, yes. When is it um, oh, uh, some a short-lived series called. Um, oh, oh God! Some of these things. Well, I can look it up real quick. Slip mm-hmm. my mind. Uh, something with Rod Taylor and Kirstie Alley. It was a the uh, new Mike Hammer. Oh, I did the new Mike Hammer, which oh. was a great role. I love doing that. Thank you. Yeah, that was. A I mean, great you have a role. you have a long list here. Is Masquerade very like a yeah, well? Masquerade. Masquerade was with uh, Kirstie Alley and and Rod Taylor, and uh, I got a chance to do um, a play. Uh, uh, in it, an American track star disguised disguising himself as a Russian nuclear scientist who becomes a decoy who can outrun the KGB. I miss the eighties. <laughs> it's, it's really, it was actually a lot of fun to shoot. And here's the thing. And this is something I want to mention earlier. You know, a lot of, I just want to identify, you know, sort of my own DNA in the acting world. Um, you know, a lot of kids, young child actors were known for kind of like, everyday you know kids and me i was a character actor all most of my roles um were 
different. They, I was all either, you know, foreign or dying or half Chinese, monk, you know, uh, poet, you know, poet, writer. Actually, Little House was my most mainstream uh, character, in fact. Uh, most of the other stuff I did, you know, what is it, you know, um, Night Gallery, I was this kid who has these fantasies of snow. Is he schizophrenic? Is he is he autistic? What's mm-hmm. happening? So, you know, um, in a world where where there's just a lot of kind of pablum for for children to act in, I actually got some pretty juicy roles, and I'm very, you know, lucky and, and proud of, of what I was able to do. Um, I, I just think it's a very impressive um, resume. I mean, you definitely, even working with Kirstie Alley early in her career before she landed um, – a role on Cheers mm-hmm. is um, pretty eye-opening. Um, well, thanks. But you decided at some point where you de- you you're going to try something else. You you've well, um, it's not that I, that's it's it's not so much that I thought I'd try something else. It's that I had to do something else once I once I saw the writing on the walls because you know here's what happens to most ninety nine point nine percent of all child actors reach this ceiling this glass ceiling or whatever you want to call it where uh, Hollywood is basically done with them, and and they don't tell you that. They don't say, uh, you know, we're done with you. They kind of like they they shake your hand and they and they have you in. But there's something unspoken that happens when they look at your resume and they go, "Oh, you were a child actor. Uh-huh. Really? You're one of those. You're one of those. Mm. Well, we really don't have a job for you." But I'm not here for a child role. I'm here for an adult role. Yeah, but you were known as a child actor. And, you know, yeah, we just don't have anything for you. And that's kind of like what happens. And you're kind of like going, what? Wait a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. I paid my dues. I have experience. Why are you hiring the guy that just stepped off the bus from, you know, Minnesota when – no offense to Minnesotans. Um, <laughs> um, and whereas, you know, here's somebody who knows how to hit the mark, who has the chops – but that's not what they want. They want the new blood. They don't want this. And there's also another thing. When you walk into an office, and this is in a different era, I don't think it's the same now, although there's still a stigma. But there is this kind of funny thing where casting people and directors, they go, ah, this is one of those guys that we kind of used when he was a kid. He was an exploited person. And we don't feel comfortable about the fact that in the whole industry that we kind of exploit children. Mm-hmm. So here's this guy who's still trying to act as an adult and and he's one of the exploited ones, and he makes us feel uncomfortable. So let's get him out of the office as quickly as possible. Right, That's right, kind right. of what's going on as well. And this is something, again, you'll never get anybody to admit that. And they may not even realize that they're doing it themselves. It's an unconscious thing, but I definitely believe that it's a part of what's going on because I've talked with many of my peers who have experienced the same thing. And so it really is a factor um, involved. So the, 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 the bottom line is, I, once I realized, okay, this really isn't working for me, I do need to do something else with my life now. And directing, even though I had been wanting to do it for you know over a decade, 15 years by that point, uh, when I was 26, 27, I was like, you know, I guess I'm just not going to be a director and I'm not going to be an actor anymore. So what else is out there? And of course, I had love, as you we talked about before we went um, started this, and we talked about audio video stuff and mm-hmm. audio files and such. Um, I Loved my stereo system. I, I knew how to hook things up well. And just then, in 1988, was the beginning of um, surround sound. And people were <laughs> beginning to buy. They were buying, yeah, you people know. people were buying DAT recorders. Well, DAT. Well, not but yet, also, right? <laughs> but Pioneer, Pioneer came out with the first 
Uh, it was before Dolby Pro Logic. It was called oh, that's what it was. It was called Dolby Pro Logic. It was not Dolby Digital. It was Dolby Pro Logic, and it was um, uh, six channels or five channels encoded into analog stereo channels that were able to be extrapolated by this Dolby process. And Pioneer was selling these receivers, but no people were bringing them home, but no one knew what to do with them. And I had uh, I had a relationship with a couple of salespeople um, at a place that I bought stuff from in L.A. And I went in there. I said, Hey guys, you know. Do you have any, any requests for people who want this stuff set up properly? And they said, yeah, we do it on our spare time, but our wives are complaining. So if you want some of this business, we'll definitely send it your way. I'm like, I'm, I'm your guy. It's a whole and, business. It's and amazing. That's how, yeah. yeah, that's how I started. And for, in, in being in Hollywood and, and such, um, they gave – you know people would come into these places who were stars and stuff, and, and, uh, and, uh, and they, my name was given to them. And they picked me because I guess – you know, once they knew that I had been in, in the business, they felt more comfortable that I wasn't on the paparazzi end of the of the, of right. the world. Right? Yeah, that's I, interesting. I, I was in their I was in their world, so I ended up, you know, doing systems for Johnny Depp and Nicolas Cage and and uh, Robert Downey Jr. and Winona Ryder and the list goes on. There's quite a few celebrities that I ended up working for, and they all recommended me to to one another uh, after the ball got rolling. And um, I was their guy for for a few years before I moved from L.A. to Portland mm. in '93. So, um, and, but but that helped me get started in Portland because people were like, "Wow, if you work for these guys, then you must be good." So that got me, you know, in the door to some of these places that sold equipment there, and I ended up transferring my business successfully. More than once, actually, because I moved a few times um, in the 30 years uh, that I was – well, 27 years that I was doing this. Um, and and my my initial work with some celebrities kind of helped, you know, give me the credibility. And, hmm. uh, yeah. So, That's amazing. Do you, yeah. So do you still um, – do you still work in the world of audio video? Uh, no. Um, being 58 years old now, <laughs> my uh, my knees and elbows and lower back have <laughs> – informed me with, in no uncertain terms that my days of lifting TVs up on the walls. No more is, carrying Cat 6 cable through the yeah, tunnel. Yeah, no more crawling in attics and, and you know, balancing on, on, on uh, beams, you know, with my knees while I right. try not to fall through a ceiling. Yeah, yeah, that, that, those days are over. Breathe, you know, uh, trying not to breathe uh, deeply, the, the blown-in insulation, and <laughs> like that, you know. Yeah, yeah, I did enough of that. And um, so... Yeah, it was time to retire from that, but it was a good long run. It was actually longer than my acting career, and wow. um, and it and it uh, paid the bills and allowed me to travel and buy a new car every you know seven years. And uh, yeah, I I'm very proud of that because here's the thing. Bottom line is acting. There's so many people that stand between you and and work. You're, there's your agent. In some cases, there's a manager. Uh, you've got publicists. You've got then you've got the casting assistant, the casting agent. The directors, the producers, all these people who have to green light you in order for you to get a job. And it takes, you know, it's a long process between when you first are submitted to then you have your first reading, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera, et cetera. Um, when I, when oh, I started, I started my own business, I was able to make a phone call, show up on time, do the work with my hands and my brain, and then be, come home with a nice check at the end of the day. And it's it was over. A revelation. Yeah, it's it, like it, you it, don't have to deal with any type of lug, you know, baggage with it. Well, not only that, that's not the main thing. It was it was empowering. I was in control of my destiny for the mm -hmm. first time in my life. And that, that was a real cool thing, and it really helped me a lot. I think it's, you know, um, in a lot of ways that's a success story because – you know, we always hear about the, you know, child actor who goes 
way down the tube, you know, and it's like, what happened to this, you know, person? Um, I don't know. You did it a little bit reverse. Like you had a natural ability, you refined it and you went a different way. And, um, I think there's, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I, I think well, that's great. Thank you. That's, I appreciate that. However, I do want to, you know, just to be, make this more interesting of an interview, you know, there were a couple of years in between when I started seeing that writing on the walls, as I mentioned, and when I finally decided to, you know, become a professional audio video designer installer, there were a couple of years in there where I did actually have some difficulties and even some, some brushes with the law. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I went through some of that anger and angst and uh, sense of powerlessness uh, that so many child actors who hit that same ceiling go through. And this is why you hear of like, I think there was something recently. I don't, I can't remember the, the kid who the kid was in school of rock. Oh uh, yeah. Right? I just read about this. He stole a yeah. bunch of guitars yeah. and amps. Yeah. Why did he go into a store and try to walk out with guitars? Because he felt powerless. And this is something that all other child actors who've grown up and, and had to do other things in their lives. They all, we all know, what this what was going on with this guy and i'll tell you it's not because he was a kleptomaniac it's because he was missing the thrill of this intense experience of being on a set and being an actor and having attention and having you know the thrill of of this when they say action and you're you know you're doing this really high pressure thing you know and well, that movie that movie was um, kind of a really big movie and it's interesting that movie came out 15 years ago Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, the kid probably was about 11 years old or something like that when he was given all of this attention Uh and, uh, you being somebody who's in a situation where you're getting all this attention and then for it to pretty much just all be taken away Uh in a matter of what people forget about movies over a course of what a year. Well, yeah. And it's like, wow, this is, you know, it's, it must be psychologically damaging. Well, Todd Bridges, Todd Bridges, you know, who is infamous mm-hmm. also for having overcome uh, some some hardships in that area. You know, I mean, listen, when I came back from from New York and I was working behind the camera, I was an assistant uh, production assistant on a, on a TV movie called High School USA that starred um, Todd Bridges and um, several other former famous, you know, people. Anyway, um, and Bridges would show up. And, on you know on location in his dressing room, standing in the door of his dressing room with a shotgun in his hand. Holy and I God. and I was like, "Hey man, I need you on the set now. Can you put that away?" You know, and and he was like, "Ah oh, man, I'm just you know I'm just playing with." I go, "Dude, do not play with guns. Do not bring guns to the set. That's not a smart idea." And he's like, "Shut up, man. You don't know what you're talking about." Kind of so you know, he even he while he was still a star was going through a sense of powerlessness because guns, of course, I mean for some people, not all people, but guns do provide a false sense of security for people who feel insecure. I owned guns at one point because Mm -hmm. of that reason. And I divested myself of owner gun ownership because I got in trouble with guns, you know, so I didn't hurt anybody, but you know, thank God, but, 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 you know, I did stupid, I I did stupid things, meaning I, I did things that I did things that I wouldn't have done had I not owned a gun. Let's just put it that way. Mm. And, and I realized, Holy moly, what am I doing? This is clearly, leading me down a path that I do not need to go down. And, um, and so I, you know, I made peace with, with the peacemaker, as they say. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, there is a story that I heard. Um, I was wondering if you, you could tell it. Um, it goes back to the little house days. 
Um, but it had to do with it had to do with guns. It had to do with a particular Ooh. scene where you were struggling to cry or get tears um, oh. because of an emotional moment because um, you couldn't pull the trigger for um, to protect um, the Victor French character. Correct. And Michael Landon kind of took you aside and had a moment with you. I, w- I wanted to know if you could uh, share that story. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, as happens, you know, uh, from time to time, an actor has to do a, a particularly emotional scene. And for whatever reason, they're having a hard time getting to that. Now, of course, the clock is running. Time is money. And uh, everyone's standing around waiting for this actor to come up with emotional goods. So a good director knows how to jump in and get it done for the sake of the production. And that's what Michael did. He, um, he said, uh, give us five minutes, you know, give us a couple minutes. And we, he took me down on, we were shooting in Sonora, California, beautiful location outdoors. And, uh, and he took me down this little, uh, path and and started telling me a story about uh, a family that he knows where the son uh, was dying of cancer. And, you know, and he, and I knew what he was doing and he, he knew that I knew what he was doing, meaning he was, he was telling me the story in order to get me in the mood, so to speak. So, I paid attention. I listened to him. I looked in his eyes. I let him tell the story. And he started to cry. And being an empathetic person, as most actors are, um, you know, I cry. I, I started crying, too. And and I got vulnerable. And I got down to a level of emotionality that I needed to get to and be comfortable with in order to do the scene. So then he said to me, OK, so can we go back? Are you ready to shoot the scene? I said, yep, let's go. Let's go. So I kept that rawness that he helped uh, open up for me. Um, and then we brought it to the to the shooting of the scene a few minutes later. So uh, that's the that's the hallmark of a of an excellent mm. what they call actors director, someone who knows actors well enough to be able to uh, appeal to them on their level and get get them to deliver the goods because that's what our job is. You know, it's it's amazing. Everyone who's worked with Michael Landon directly um, really has these type of moments with him. It seems it it mm. almost seems impossible. It's the well, guy no. the guy that's seems. The no, no, no. I'm just. I'm not saying it is impossible. I'm just saying, um, he across the board, he really gets the admiration of so many. Right, and that's because, uh, well, and again, you've probably spoken mostly to actors. I would assume. And Forgive me. Who worked for him? Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> so. he was an act. He was an actor's director. There's a term called an actor's director, which means. I mean, there's some directors who just you know they expect you to do everything, and they're just talking with the technical, you know, getting the shots and the cinematographer, and 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 they just expect the actors to be able to do their own work. And if they don't pull it off, well, that's too bad. It's on them. Um, but that's not Michael. Michael's job was to create as much authenticity emotionally on a weekly basis mm-hmm. for the sake of his viewers. So they could live through these characters and, and feel, you know, hit those real emotional resonance points. And, uh, and he knew that was his job and he was very good at that. Yeah. It, it's really, and I think it resonates even now. There's something very timeless about the production. Um, sure. The film is um, the film. The show has definitely found new life with new with um, a new generation. It seems. Um, oh goodness! Especially yes. over in France, it seems as though in France they have rediscovered it or discovering it for the first time. Well, look, can I can I shed some light on that? For sure. You? Um, yeah. So you know, most people who think of France, uh, most Americans who think of France, think of Paris naturally, and most Americans who travel to France never go anywhere but Paris. As soon as you get on a train and you leave Paris, you suddenly realize if you're looking out the window and not sleeping from jet lag, mm. is you realize, holy mackerel, 
this is nothing but farm country that that exists between the larger cities. It's a it's a country whose land has been worked for thousands of years, and uh, instead of you know just a few hundred years like like the U.S. But 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 you know that is not to say that in America as well you know there's just so much farmland and there's so many people who are farmers who can identify with having to bring the grain you know to the to the to the to this to be sold and, sure. and so that's one of the reasons why they identify so much with it hang on one second can you pause for a moment yeah absolutely i have i have to address something locally here can you yeah, just do hang what you gotta do it's fine thank you thank you okay um Go ahead. Yeah, I'll just edit that out. No problem. Okay. All right. Are we I'm just writing down the time? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, um, let me know when we're continuing. Yeah, we're. Yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't stop the recorder. I'll record. I'll um, edit it out. I, I can pick up exactly where I left off. So no worries. So you can jump in right right now. Okay. So, um, you know, I've I've been to little house reunions in the in the heartland, and I have seen literally four generations of, of women standing in front of me dressed in bonnets, you know, and I'm talking, we're talking about the grandmother, her daughter, her daughter's daughter, and then the daughter's daughter's daughter. So four generations of people who have been uh, steeped in the show because it just gets handed down from generation to generation. It does have a timelessness to it. Any period piece is going to have the potential to have that kind of timelessness because it's frozen in time. When you try to make contemporary television, you know, mod squad or um or uh, you know um any of the you know csi you're gonna look at csi in 10 years and go wow look at the phones they were carrying around back then oh my god (laughs) but but when you look at something that shot that takes place in the 1800s you're not gonna say oh look that pitchfork that was not made with modern technology you know you're not gonna do that so basically it has a, a evergreen quality to it just as kung fu in a way did as well right uh so and so of course what Landon did for for people, for his viewers, was give them an opportunity to feel some authentic emotion, to have insight into people's lives and the difficulties and the challenges that we all face and how, how to overcome them with some grace. I think that's kind of one of the main, you know, through lines in, in, in the show. And he did it really well. Uh, you, one of your interesting questions that you talked uh, you sent me before we, we did this interview, uh, what I thought was kind of interesting was, what was my... Um, I'm paraphrasing here. What was my, what did I think of the show before I was on the show? Oh yeah. I forgot, I forgot to ask you that. Sorry. That's a good, that's a good question. Um, and yeah, no what, one's did ever, you, what did you <laughs> think? of? <laughs> what did you think of little last night before you're on the show? Uh, it's a great question. No one's ever asked me that before. Um, you know, I'll be perfectly honest. Uh, I thought, well, first of all, I was on, I think the already later part of the first season, but it was not a show that I would have watched chosen to watch on television because you know, at the time, it was kind of what's the word? It was too kind of dorky. Folksy. It was, well, it, was <laughs> it was a girl show where I. Lived. It was a girl show. It was a folksy girl show. Well, of course, it was taken from a, from a girl's little girl's perspective. Of course, yeah. yeah so, um, yeah. So it was not a show that a, you know, a fifteen year old boy <laughs> is going to identify with. You know, um, but now that it's been sort of canonized in this sort of generational aspect. I, I always compliment the men who come with their wives and, you know, 
support their their wives uh, who are fans of the show and who watch it with them because I say, well, that shows what a neat guy you are because you you know you obviously aren't afraid to have an emotional side and it's okay <laughs> and, and you love your wife and you guys probably get a lot out of watching the show together. So I always try to support the guys. Who you show know, up. I like to share how, you know, I discovered little house in a prairie when I was probably 11 or 12 years old and it was on reruns at that point in the eighties. So right. I would watch it in secrecy away from my friends um, <laughs> from five to six on channel 11 here in New York. And yeah. I would never talk about Little House in the Prairie with anyone. Um, and it wasn't until I got into um, my early 20s, I'm hanging out with some of my friends, and somebody just kind of drops a Little House in the Prairie comment. And I'm like, you watched Little House in the Prairie? And all of a sudden, I realized all of my male friends were pretty much doing the same exact thing from five mm-hmm. to six. Um, we were all Jeez. secretly watching Little House in the Prairie. Isn't that something? That's really interesting. That's really <laughs> interesting. Well, that's good. And, and kudos to you. You know, it's, it's to your credit that, that you, um, you know, are a person who is not afraid of their emotions and who. Um, <laughs> what and are you saying, willing... Rodimus? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, if I can give a plug at this moment. To, yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, uh, you're a fellow New Yorker. Um, of your fellow of yours and mine too. Cause I, my original, my birthplace is New York. I was born in Manhattan. Oh, um, excellent. There's a gal named Pamela Bob who uh, has now been um, getting some attention for a show that she put together. Uh, I think a mini series, which she actually had Alison Arngram uh, do a guest spot in and also um, Charlotte Stewart as well. Oh really? Um, yeah. Called living on a prairie. Oh, all right. I know yeah. it. <laughs> oh, you do know it. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So um, I, I have not seen it, but I, everything I've heard about it is really good. And I really, I think Pamela herself is an exceptional person. Um, and so I just want people to have put it on their radar screen that there's a kind of interesting project about a, about a contemporary woman who sort of escapes and into, into Little House and actually uses Little House kind of like, in a way, like um, as therapy to cope with life, you know. Uh, there was also that one... Um strange show that I didn't really follow little mosque on the prairie that uh, was out a few years ago, which I thought was kind of a, like, what is this exactly? <laughs> I don't, don't know that one. That's no, no, it was a, um, it was maybe on comedy central. I have to look, huh. uh, I'll look it up into it, but um, I'll put a link to uh, Pamela Bob's living on a prairie. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah, well, what's you. next for you, Rodimus? Oh well, um, right now um, I'm uh, my, my my number one objective right now is to learn French um, because uh, I plan to stay here for a while. Which right now I'm that's what the that's what the life plan looks like. How long um, have you been there? Uh, I'm embarrassed to say I've been here for a couple of years and I still don't speak French very well. Hmm. Um, but partially because I'm kind of isolated um, a little bit. I'm, I'm in. I'm actually doing daddy daycare. I'm Mr. Mom right now. I've got a two and a half year old daughter. Oh wow. Uh, yeah, who I'm taking care of uh, during the day. Her mom, uh, my wife, works. I'm Mr. Uh, mom, too, and my wife oh, works. Okay. Well, very cool. Well, that, <laughs> kudos to you for that. Um, anyway, yeah, so you understand. And and so that's been occupying my time, but now it's time to get myself a real job. And uh, don't know what that's going to shape, what shape that's going to take, uh, especially with the language barrier. So um, got to go to school. I got to yeah. just really knuckle down and learn learn the French so I can – have more more opportunities here well i wish um, you the best of luck um i know i know you're still um I, I went onto your youtube channel and i saw some stuff that you're working on here and there mm-hmm. um so it looks like the projects have not stopped which i think is great 
Oh, thanks. Well, yes, um, they're 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 kind of intermittent. Um, I've done a lot of different things with with video art and and helping young filmmakers with their projects and stuff when I can. And of course, I'm always available if somebody has a a film or short film they want to you know to hire an, an actor for. I'm I'm always available for that. Um, I love acting. It's just not something that I am good at pursuing on a business level. So. So I kind of uh, I sort of wait for for the for the drop of, of of honey to fall from the from the from the honeycomb and land on my tongue. You know, that's kind of that's kind of my approach to acting at this moment. Well, Anonymous, uh, I, I want to thank you so much for coming on and talking to me about all of this stuff. Um, it's really been uh, it's been great conversation. I love it when we talk about just like the regular everyday stuff. Not we never got the audio house. file stuff. <laughs> yeah, that'll be next time. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I can I, tell you about my Macintosh um, system that I, I basically acquired this thing by sweeping out somebody's garage. Uh huh. They said if you sweep out my garage and clean it out, you can have it. I'm like, that's how I acquired my Macintosh. Actually. Really? No. Yes. So we'll have to we'll have to go into detail about that's that because insane. I, I, I learned I learned a lot about audio audio equipment from that experience. I so. burned my hand quite a few times on that stupid thing. <laughs> like well, I can change be, tubes. You know. I would um, be more than happy to speak to you again, Mark. And you've made it a pleasure. Thank you very much. I wish you luck with your podcast and uh, and and let's stay in touch. Thank you.